Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us podcast. We are so excited to have Pauline Brown, author of Aesthetic Intelligence, on our podcast today. Pauline went to Dartmouth and got her MBA at Wharton. She is the former chairman of LVMH North America and also worked as a private equity investor at the Carlisle Group in the consumer and retail sectors as a strategy consultant at Bain, as well as working at Estee Lauder and Avon. She teaches a course at Columbia University that she conceptualized and created at Harvard Business School called The Business of Aesthetics. I first learned about Pauline and her book at a delightful talk I attended in New York City at the Core Club pre-COVID days, those delightful days. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here, Pauline. Well, thank you, Delia, for having me. And thank you, Allison. I enjoyed meeting you what was only a year ago, but in many respects was like a world away from where we are today. So I'm glad that the conversation about aesthetics and style lives on. Oh my gosh, Pauline, when I read your book, I literally took millions of pictures. It took me like so long to read because it was filled with such incredible information. So we are very excited to share your career and book with our audience. So do you want to start by walking us through your career path? Sure, sure. Um, You know, and they always say that career paths make a lot more sense when you talk about them retrospectively than when you're going through them prospectively. You know, I didn't know what I was doing as I was going from A to B to C to D. Uh, I look back and I now am able to sort of string together what drove different decisions and both decisions to join different companies or to focus on different areas within companies and what drove decisions to move away from some of the steps that I took. I really kind of graduated into this work world and we're going back about 30 years where especially women, but I'd say men and women had two identities. It was who you were at work and it was who you were at home and who I was meant to be at work had I followed those rules, which I did initially, I don't anymore, was a professional and a professional who dresses a certain way, who talks a certain way, who you know, has a certain demeanor and who I was expected to be at home, which eventually became you know, a mom and a wife and, uh, and, and, and involved in the community, was a very different self. And the reason I bring this up is a big part of my push, I would say once I had the confidence about midway through my career, was to try to reconcile who Pauline is you know, as an individual, as a human, and what she wants to do by day and after day time, you know, after work hours. And one of the many attractions that I had from a very young age was to be working with and to be interacting with creative people, people who have a sense of style, people who are motivated by ideas. And I look back at all of my friends and all of the activities going back down to high school and even elementary school, it was always in this sort of world of the arts and of culture. And then I look at the career path that I took, which had nothing to do with that initially. I, uh, I went to business school. I chose the business school that was probably least humanities oriented, which was the Wharton Business School. I you know, took all the classic analytic and data-driven courses that were offered. And I went into a very, I would say, um, um, sort of measured and big boy type of career. I started at Bain & Company, which I was on the consulting, management consulting side. Years later, I went into private equity. And so again, there was this growing divide between how I spent my days and the kind of people I interacted with and the seriousness of, of, of that sort of big finance, big business world and who I was, you know, when I could sort of, so to speak, take off my suit. And at some point, I mentioned that there was an inflection point around midway through my career, but at some point I realized that many of the businesses that actually constituted big, sophisticated corporate environments actually were built on the kind of creative energy that I was attracted to for the first place. And it started for me by moving into cosmetics. Cosmetics is a very big business. It's multi-billion dollar business, but it is driven by very visionary individuals. It's an entrepreneurial space. It's women-centric. Obviously women are making the products, but even more importantly, women are predominantly buying the products. And then years later, I ended up in fashion, um, similar to cosmetics, is driven by that kind of creative energy. And so I think that the, the moment that I was able to reconcile 
kind of the, the, the culture and the mindset of who I wanted to be and who I wanted to be associated with off hours with how I was spending my, my daytime was really when I, my career and frankly, my happiness took hold. Mm-hmm. I love that. Talk to us about working at Bain, the Carlisle Group. How did you remain mentally healthy mm. during such demanding and time-intensive jobs? Well, it wasn't easy um, because it's incredibly intense and high-pressured. The hours are long. When I was at Bain, I was still single. It was before I married, before I had children. And so mm-hmm. it was a little bit less of a tug in terms of there being other demands on me. If there were any demands on me in my Bane years, it was just that I wanted to spend my time, you know, going to museums and being with friends and, you know, mm-hmm. seeing the latest movies or shopping in the coolest stores. And I didn't have the time or energy for that. By the time I got to the Carlisle group, I had young children. And so the idea that I would spend any time, you know, going into the coolest shops or, or seeing the latest movies was out of the question anyway. Um, and I'd say they both had their challenges. Um, to answer your question, how did I stay mentally healthy? Well, I always, even uh, even with all the constraints of those two firms, I always had good girlfriends and I always made some time for them. It wasn't as much as I always wanted, but I I didn't need a lot of, um, you know, of, of, of close relations in my life, but I needed a few and I needed to have quality time with those few. And so I'd say that, that many of the girlfriends I have today, they've seen me through many different stages in my life. They knew me before, you know, I had an impressive title in any one, of, any one of my jobs. And uh, we still laugh and play like little kids together. I think <laughs> that was part of it. I think the other thing was just staying very disciplined, knowing that in those circumstances, whatever I was doing and however stressful a given week or month might have been, that it wasn't going to be the rest of my life. I always took comfort in knowing that this was just another chapter in a very, very long book. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Let's expand further on how did you balance motherhood with this incredible career? Well, there too, uh, I would say that there was no secret sauce. Um, A couple of things that I look back on and I'm very proud, in fact, more proud to see the, 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 the promise and the um, sort of um, the menschlichkeit, as we would say in Yiddish, <laughs> of my two kids than I am of anything else that I've ever contributed to. So thank God for that. And I think some of that is lucky. I mean, there are people who are just, you know, who have children who need, you know, extra care and, and who need maybe more than I could have ever given. I had two kids that um, each, they're different, they're different learners. Um, they have different temperaments. Uh, my son is now in college. My daughter's finishing up high school. But I think that uh, the things that helped, number one, um, it was still a very loving home. So while Monday to Friday, neither of them saw a whole lot of me. But when they did see me, they never felt that, you know, that that they weren't the priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, I and, and this was a, a challenge and there really aren't enough resources to help with this. But I had very, very loving caretakers, unlike many of my friends who were looking for nannies that, you know, spoke Chinese or that, you know, had, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, global experiences. I just wanted women who would love my children as I would if I had been home. And, And I think for that value, I couldn't have done better. I figured they could, you know, get tutoring and all the other support you know, important areas of support elsewhere, but they just needed the affection and the care. And so I did have very, very good help. You know, and I would say the other thing to keep in mind is while, you know, there were big chunks of time where I was not very accessible, I also did a few big, what I call timeouts. So for example, when I left Carlisle, I took a long period of time and I was just independent. I was doing some of the things I do today with my independence. I was writing, I was lecturing, doing some advisory work, and I was very present for them. And then, you know, flash forward a few years and LVMH comes forward and it was a great offer. And I decided I'd go back into the throes of, of a big institutional setting. And there were a few years while I was at LVMH that once again, they didn't see as much of me. And then I left LVMH and I became a teacher and a writer and so forth. And now they see a lot of me. So I think it's also important to remember that these careers, even the most high powered ones, rarely follow a sort of straight line in one direction, that there's interruptions, that there's, as I call them, timeouts. And when you have that, you really do have to take advantage of your freedom. 
That's great advice. I think when women are away from work, when they're with their kids, they need to be in the moment there. And it sounds like that's what you did. The quality time when they knew you were actually really listening to them and right there with them, not on your phone. (laughs) I did the best I could. And I didn't expect them or demand perfection of of them. Mm -hmm. I was less, I'd say compared to many women I know, less demanding that they be quote unquote successful. But mm-hmm. I, what, what was very important to me, and I think that they, they took to heart is that they, uh, they're kind, mm-hmm. um, that they uh, are accepting of others, that they're curious. And so even when we did have, for example, those quality you know, days or weeks or years together, we did, uh, we did adventures together that I think were also part of their, their growth and development. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I look back and I, uh, I don't have regrets on that, but I am very sympathetic to women who are going through what I now recall as the sort of the, the, the most difficult stages of being a mom and juggling a big career. I'm very sympathetic. It is hard. Oh gosh, it sounds like you did a great job. And the thing to remember, it's very easy to be guilty in the moment, but overall the children aren't going to remember. Like I'm sure mom felt really guilty to leave me whenever she left me, but overall mm-hmm. I don't have my memories of her not being there. I have memories mm-hmm. of being there. Mm-hmm. So that's something maybe to think about too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. How did you develop your sense of style? Very organic process. And it wasn't highly conscious. I think what was conscious is, um, you know, that I be- I became very aware at different stages that style didn't just express how I might have wanted to look, but also what I believed and a spirit that I wanted to convey. So I had some very strong influences on me and I never looked at any one of them and I can share, you know, two or three, but I never Mm -hmm. looked at any one of them as, wow, I want to model myself after that person. I looked at them as sort of part of a mosaic that I liked elements, but I wanted to sort of make it my own. Uh, one of them was my grandmother on my maternal side. She, uh, you know, she led a very interesting life, uh, was born in, in Germany and had, had fled with her young family when the Nazis uh, regime took over. And she ended up First moving to to Barcelona, where an uncle of mine was born, and then ending up in Cape Town, where my mother was born and raised. And I think just through her world adventures and through her own sense of a great sense of design. In fact, she, while she was in South Africa, was making and marketing ball gowns for the gentry of South Africa. I really picked up her sense of, you know, that she 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 enjoyed decoration. She enjoyed decorating herself. She enjoyed decorating a dinner table. She had uh, extraordinary charisma. She was bold. She had, uh, because she came from a very affluent uh, banking family and she had a lot of heirlooms. And nowadays we would look at them and we'd want them to be appraised by insurers and we'd probably lock some of those pieces up knowing that they're irreplaceable. She just wore them and she didn't even just wear them to the opera. She just wore them if she was going out with a few friends. And Mm -hmm. I loved her sense of just, you know, we have these things because we should enjoy them. Mm -hmm. My other grandmother, interestingly, on my father's side, also uh, someone who escaped the Holocaust, she's from Vienna where my father was born. You know, she had a very different style than my maternal grandmother, but also a very, very heightened awareness of what was elegant and refined, had a great eye for detail. And, uh, and from her, I learned a bit more of sort of my ladylike sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, her eye and sort of a sensibility for, for silhouette and for, um, for the lines of things, for very subtle color combinations. Everything was very nuanced, but detailed. Uh, in both cases, because they come from an old world and they both ended up in New York, where I live and have lived the better part of my life, I think that they modernized it. They figured out how to modernize it. But there was always a little bit of elements of that old world, old European world that came with them. And I feel I carry that on as well. This sort of old European style meets very bold, sometimes brassy New Yorker. What I thought was fascinating from the talk that I attended where you spoke at the court club 
was the difference in how various cultures do business and why a company like LVMH could not exist in the U.S., for example. Mm -hmm. So let's Mm -hmm. talk about the differences in working in the business world in the U.S. and France. Mm. So um, I'll compare because on the surface, they would seem like good analogies, LVMH and Estee Lauder, the Estee Lauder companies, which I spent uh, a good amount of time at both companies. Estee Lauder was an earlier stage in my life. The reason that on the surface, they would seem comparable. Well, when I was at Estee Lauder, it was family controlled. It's now a public company with still some family involvement, but it was much more run like a family-owned business. LVMH to this day is family controlled by the Arnaud family. They both are in luxury businesses. You know, they're not selling any essential goods, uh, even within their various categories, whether it's makeup or it's handbags, they tend to sell on the upper end of those markets. They both philosophically believe in very limited distribution. So they try to control where you can find their products and how their products are presented at that point of purchase. So, but they are incredibly different. And uh, I could attribute it to a lot of things, but I'd say that the most critical one is LVMH is at its core a French company and the Arno family that control it are very French. Estee Lauder is at its core an American company and the family that have essentially controlled it for a few generations and still have a big imprint on the company are all American and they're more than American, they're New York. They're New York based. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to be a French company? Well, in France, first of all, even if a company is public, there's a different sense of time, a different relationship with time. In the case of LVMH, by that, I don't just mean quarter to quarter reporting, which is always the bane of American companies' existence, you know, the pressure mm-hmm. to meet your quarterly earnings. LVMH does not live by that pressure. They certainly want to maintain a healthy business and they're very competitive, but they don't look at the quarterly returns as an indicator of whether they're making the right strategic moves. But even more than that, LVMH is very aware of the heritage of all of its brands. And it has brands in that portfolio that have predated the family's involvement by hundreds of years. A brand like a Dom Perignon or even a Louis Vuitton, which isn't as old as Dom Perignon. These are century old, in some cases, two or three century old companies. And the awareness of their history and of the people who started them and of the times that they were you know, spawned in and how that shaped what felt good and looked good for that particular brand in that particular category. If I take the same example, uh, Estee Lauder has about 35 different cosmetic brands Some of them, like a lauder, were launched and came of age in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Some of the newer ones, like a Mac, might be in the 90s. And then you have some much newer ones, you know, that have really only come of age in the 2000s or more recently. And nobody really talks about the history of cosmetics. They talk about their position in the market. They talk about their attitude toward color or toward skincare. But I would also say that the Americans tend to look at functions and features more analytically. So you'll see American companies kind of present their goods. And this is true in fashion as well, in terms of the fit, in terms of the feel, in terms of the lifestyle, but it's a bit of an analytic approach. The French look at everything as a seduction. And there's always a big piece of why you would buy that doesn't get revealed, but just kind of lures you in. And it's, you know, it it probably emanates from the King's Court, you know, of 500 years ago. And they still kind of have a bit of a value system where the seduction of selling is part of the appeal. So that would be one of many different differences uh, or many variable differences between working for a French company and working for an American company. Fascinating. I love that so much. And I think that it's so crazy. The quarterly, you have very much experienced this. It happens so frequently and it seems like such a nightmare. Here we are again, another quarter and it's so busy. It is a treadmill that just doesn't stop. And, you know, I've sat on the board of public companies. I have been involved in buyouts of public companies. The pressure on CEOs and their management teams to keep up with a marketplace that's moving so fast and that's so unforgiving makes it, I'd say it is why so many big companies fail in time. I mean, it's just non-sustainable. Same with the designers. I mean, they just can't. Yes. Yeah. I think it's even more debilitating for these design driven companies than it is for say tech companies that have 
were born mm-hmm. and raised in you know these fast moving innovation driven mm-hmm. cultures. Mm-hmm. Design really never was about speed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be about creativity at some point. <laughs> All right, switching gears a little bit. In the book, you mentioned that it wasn't until you stopped trying to fit in and started to be yourself that you had the most success and gained confidence. Let's explore this as a reminder to our audience that there is no other you in the world, and let's not spend time trying to be like other people or fit in. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you think about, is it ever too late to realize that? Never too late. Definitively never too late. Uh, In fact, one of the things I'm working on right now, which I'm very excited about, is an online education platform for aesthetic intelligence so that people can come wherever their starting point, whatever they do by, you know, for for their career, whatever their circumstances, and they can get better. So I always say, first of all, there's no arrival when it comes to aesthetic intelligence. It's being your best self and expressing it as fully and as confidently as you can. And, you know, you just like you don't have to teach a baby to enjoy ice cream, there are certain things we just come into this world with an enjoyment of. And I think figuring out how to express ourselves in a way that feels right and enjoyable to us is part of the challenge. And part of the challenge is also getting back to our childlike selves, you know, because we go through life and we, we become more and more numb to what makes us different because from an early age, especially in the school system, but also in the work in work cultures, we're kind of hammered into these, you know, these pegs, like we're expected to just fit in mm-hmm. and in a way that takes whatever makes us most interesting and most unique. And, you know, and in some cases, most non-ordinary, which I would call extraordinary, and it just kind of shaves it off into ordinary. So to answer your question, Alison, no, it's never too late. And in my own case, you know, I think it was just an epiphany at some point that there was really only one thing in the world that I do better than anyone else. Just one thing. And that's just to be myself. There's nobody who has a right to do Pauline Brown better than Pauline Mm -hmm. Brown does. They can do anything else I could point to better. And I'll applaud them and I'll emulate them for those skills and those talents. But to be me is something I have to own. And it's something I have to work on. I very much agree. And I, just like you said, I don't think you can arrive. I mean, I think some people are more comfortable with it throughout their entire lives. And then some people, it takes a long time for them to be brave enough to step out of their shell. So the name aesthetic intelligence, can you give us the definition of that? Mm-hmm. I'm glad you asked because it's apt to be misinterpreted. Most people, when I mention the word aesthetics, and let's just start by defining that word, you know, they think of beauty. Right. Um, And aesthetics certainly can and often is beautiful, but it doesn't have to be. It's not about beauty. Mm -hmm. Uh, People also think about visual elegance. And I always say, well, visual is an important part of it, but aesthetics is really about all five senses, about lifting the senses. The word aesthetics actually comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which means perception of the senses. So it's about the pleasure that we derive when we tap into different sensorial cues that delight us, right? Mm -hmm. And aesthetic intelligence is really about our ability as individuals to discern what looks and feels good to us individually, and also about how do we articulate it such that we can actually motivate other people or direct other people to deliver on that. So aesthetic intelligence, in a word, it's taste, but it's taste that goes beyond what your own isolated taste is. And it's taking your taste and it's really with regards to a business proposition, it's how do I bring my taste into my company, into my brand, into my office, into all that I express that this company stands for. And how do I get other people to understand it, subscribe, and maybe even long after I'm gone, continue to carry it forward as great companies like Disney and, you know, and Louis Vuitton have done so well, well after their founders have passed. And going back to talking about culture and square peg round hole, and then in school trying to, everybody just wants to fit in. Is there any solution? Have you ever thought about how do we change that? Well, we have to start by changing ourselves. The reason I wrote this book, Aesthetic Intelligence, is I was teaching a course up at Harvard called The Business of Aesthetics. And I taught it for two years there. 
And I realized by the end of the second year that I didn't have any challenge getting these students who were budding hedge fund investors or technology entrepreneurs, whatever the business they were going into. I didn't have a hard time getting them to understand the concept and to buy into it and to see the importance. But where I did stop short is their understanding of what they should do about it. And and what they should do about it should not have come down to, well, let me just hire a better marketing agency to rebrand my brand or, 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 or let me just hire somebody in an art director who's going to be able to handle A, B, and C. It was really starting with the self. And so to your question, Delia, about how do we take away some of the pressure we put on others or we put on ourselves to be conventional, to satisfy what others might expect? I think you have to start by getting comfortable with, with being different and knowing that that is actually a source of strength and value. To be different is not a liability, it's your asset. What do you think is the most important thing in business? So when I was getting my undergrad business degree at William & Mary, maximize shareholder wealth and value was drilled into us. Is that still relevant? Should it change? What's happening? Uh, I think it's one of probably uh, four legs under the table that we should be leaning on. Um, and the, the flaw in that thinking that it was a standalone objective, I think, is, is that it led to a lot of bad behaviors. First of all, maximizing wealth over what time frame? Right. Um, you know, going back to the LVMH scenario, there's a lot of brands in that portfolio that are not maximized today, but they'll be around for 100 years. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of great brands today that are doing very well in the markets, but they won't be around in another five or 10 years. So I think this idea of, of economic sustainability, you know, often when we talk about sustainability, we talk about the environment. That's very, very important. But we don't think enough about the economic model and the sustainability of that. So even when I'm personally investing in businesses as an angel or, you know, as a stock picker, I really look at the longer term proposition. Another thing I think we should, we, you know, I've always been a, a proponent of looking at the cost that any company may exact outside of any cost that it actually is um, incurring. So, you know, we all know companies that have done very well, maybe financially, but they've created problems for the environment that, you know, the world is having to pay for. So I think really understanding, even I, I look at a lot of businesses that sell cheap things. And I say, on the one hand, it's great for people who are economically distressed. They can buy a lot more for a lot less. On the other hand, when you actually look at the real cost that goes into making cheap things, whether it's in the form of labor abuses Mm -hmm. or manufacturing processes that are toxic Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, uh, all sorts of other, you know, hidden, hidden costs, Mm-hmm. I think that that we have to be more transparent and uh, more critical of how things actually get made and w- how much we're really paying for what seems cheap. Very, very good point. You can't see feelings and sometimes they're hard to articulate. How can we ensure business leaders understand the importance of both qualitative and quantitative metrics? There is no better motivation than the need to survive and to thrive. And I think we are at a stage in our industrial development mm-hmm. where just looking at things quantitative will not get you the success that you might have enjoyed in the past and that you're expected to deliver today. I think these qualitative measures are becoming more and more important as we become a more developed and evolved society. And we don't need as much stuff. We just don't need as much stuff. Right. But So what we look at is getting a few stuff that has meaning for us. And meaning doesn't come from some sort of quantitative metric-driven organization. It comes from people who are bringing ideas to the fore, people who have taste themselves, people who care about quality. And uh, so I think the market in the long-term will ensure that that balance exists. In the short term, I think it's up to the, um, the conscience of people working in business to say, I have to be more than just a robotic producer. Right, I think it's exactly what you were just talking about, a bunch of cheap things versus one special thing, you know, that you treasure. That's what we need to get to. And it was made ethically and with good quality materials. Mm -hmm. 
Color is so important. Any tips for how a brand should choose their colors? So a couple of thoughts on that one. Um, you know, first of all, brands really don't choose colors, right? People do. And typically when it comes to the brand colors, it was the founders of that brand that chose them. And I always say, start with colors that move you as a founder or as a designer. Don't pick something because you think no one else has done it and it will fit, look good on the shelf and there's sort of an external or my customers or seem to be attracted. Do it because it expresses your belief and the feeling that you want to evoke based on feelings that that color or combination of colors evoke in you. Because even within that range of options that start with yourself, there are limitless color options and it can be overwhelming. And there's a lot of colors out there that are hard to own, not because they're not great colors, but because either a lot of other brands already are there or because they're more generic in nature. Like it's hard to own a color like black. There are shades of black, but they're much less decipherable than say shades of pink, right? You could, I could, right off the bat, think of many different shades of pink and many different shades of green and many different shades of blue. I can't think of, you know, and wouldn't decipher as many shades of black. So I would pick within whatever color and mood you're going for, ones that you can really within your category kind of own, that are memorable, that are distinct, that are interesting, that work in combination with other colors. So sometimes I see brands that might have one very generic color, uh, like a black or a navy, which they can't own, but the combination of where they put that maybe against an orange which might, or, or, or maybe a yellow or maybe a pink is what brings it alive. So I wouldn't just think of the color independently. I would think of how it fits within the combinations within the whole and then go from there. But start with yourself. Start with colors that you love, that make you feel good and that that live with you uh, over time, because obviously you don't want to be changing your color codes every couple of years. What makes something timeless and how can designers and business owners make their products stand the test of time? Well, first of all, most designers don't really know when they're designing which items or silhouettes or collections will be timeless and which ones won't. I would say with the exception that, you know, if they're producing something because they look at the market and they know that the trend is sort of towards something like high-end sneakers, decorated sneakers, or the trend is, you know, gilded accessories or what have you. If they're following trends, I can tell you with 100% certainty, it won't be timeless. But for the designers who are thinking outside of that particular flow, product flow, I would say what ultimately proves their collections to be timeless is... First of all, if it isn't made with quality materials, then even the most timeless cut is going to deteriorate very quickly. Every time you wash it, every time someone wears it, a lot of products on the market right now in fashion particularly are not built to last. And so I'd say timelessness has to be built such that it can withstand usage and it can withstand the whims of the time. That would be number one. Um, number two, I would say it has to it has to really comfort the body. Uh, a lot of things will look good on the runway or they'll look good sitting on a hanger. Um, maybe they'll even look good if you wore it once to a very elegant black tie event. But if you're really gonna keep something and you're gonna wear it repeatedly and each time you're gonna bring something new to it, you want it to really fit right on your body. And if it doesn't, you're probably not gonna be your best self anyway. You're basically performing that role and you're probably even wearing it rather than, you know, or having it wear on you. So I would really look for the fit and for the sort of sensorial comfort of how it's sitting, how it's feeling. Um, that would be my, my other test. And again, we'll never really know until time has passed, mm -hmm. uh, but we can have a better sense or a worse sense as to whether it'll last. And you very much experienced this with the companies that you worked for. Let's remind others to try to be original instead of replicating existing designs. I am even shocked to see the biggest brand names copying each other. Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it it breaks my heart because, as I said, people don't need more stuff. and if you if you're copying, then you're just looking to push out more stuff. And I think some of it is that as 
big brands get bigger, they lose that a sense of accountability. They lose the voice of, you know, you take someone like, like, like a brand like Chanel, which I think still does a very good job honoring its, its, mm-hmm. its particular philosophy toward design, but Coco's spirit is still kind of felt. And I think Karl Lagerfeld after her is still sort of able to infuse so much energy and vision into that line that you can still feel after both have passed remnants of what they did. Whereas a lot of brands, you know, they, they, they move into a totally new sphere when there's a new designer and then there's, you know, a team of people and nobody really feels that their name is on the line. And I think that's usually the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. And then they don't give the new designers enough time to, to yes. really do anything before they ask them to leave. But I do think that's interesting when you were saying earlier about France and time and a little bit more consideration and everything you know you can see that in some of the french brands at least this heritage brands like mm-hmm. on and chanel all right what are your thoughts on the future of brick and mortar well i'm strangely bullish on bricks and mortar but not mm-hmm. most of the existing ones um mm-hmm. i think there'll be a new crop of ones once we've rationalized the system the issue we have today you know and and we're, we're overstored as a country as a world for sure but i think america's more guilty of this than others of just mm-hmm. opening too many malls too many high streets uh you know too, too many shopping centers and there's too much choice and then of course it, you know they're, they're each of those shops are selling too much of the same thing, as you mentioned earlier. (laughs) There's so much copycatting and it's kind of a race to the bottom. It's a very uninspired experience. I think the handful of stores that are still doing what we want in bricks and mortar, which is to to discover and to to be inspired and to feel things. I mean, I don't have a great track record buying clothing online. I'm happy to buy sweatsuits online. You know, but when it comes to fashion and when it comes to things that I want to express myself that I think are original, you know, in the apps, anything can look good on the right model in the right two dimensional pixelated image, but it won't look good or feel good when it actually is on me. And so I want, when it comes to clothes, you know, when it comes to toothpaste, I'm happy to put everything online. <laughs> I don't, I don't need to be inspired particularly, but when it comes to clothing, when it comes to jewelry, when it comes to accessories, when it comes to even larger elements of home decor, I really want to see it in 3d. I want to feel it. I want to sit on it. I want to, you know, wrap it. And, and that's, you know, that's why we do have five senses. And at most, you know, the digital sphere is activating one and a half of them. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, what will happen in the short to midterm is there'll be a lot of store closings in part because we have too many stores, as I mentioned, in part because of the stores that should be uh, coveted. They're so, they've gotten so sloppy on execution. They're, you know, they're not delivering the, the service proposition, they're not giving you the in-store experience, they're not inspiring you, well, why? But what I, what I very much hope, and I think the market tends to follow logic over time is that there'll be a new generation of merchants that treat their store as a theater and that enjoy the process of picking things for their market and of matchmaking people and mm-hmm. positions. And, uh, and that's where fashion will start to come alive again. I love that idea that makes me think of when I was young and we went downtown, you know, and I remember walking in and there was the big chocolate counter and then we shopped and then we got to have lunch and it was this whole, uh, like you said, the five senses were just, you know, a flame. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that, that sense of discovery, you know, which we, right. we do when we travel, you know, we, we, we immerse ourselves in something that's new, but we shouldn't have to get on an airplane and travel, you know, to an exotic location to mm-hmm. have, you know, elements of that in our local mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And so I look forward to the day where stores can play a role again, beyond just transactional. Absolutely. Surprise and delight. I loved the part in the book where you talked about the things that people don't consider, like the checkout and goodbye process isn't usually very exciting or thoughtful. It's more transactional, but Mm -hmm. that is the last thing that they're going to remember. (laughs) So that doesn't make any sense, but hopefully people will read the book and understand and change that. Well, 
Thank you for bringing it up. Uh, I call that the halo effect, that what happens after people leave and before they come back is as important as what happens while they're in the store. Okay. And then the science of enjoyment, is that a part of that too? It's, it's related. It's related. It's, I mean, the science of enjoyment is, you know, in a nutshell, that about 50% of what we enjoy, whether it's a vacation or a shopping spree, is our memory of it and our anticipation of re-experiencing it. And the other 50% is the actual moment of truth when you're, whether it's in the store or wearing the item you bought in the store. And yet so few uh, retailers or other business people think about the customer in that context of what happens when they leave. Oh, this is exciting. So much to think about. <laughs> Switching gears, what are some things that people should keep in mind throughout their career? Remember that careers are long and uh, I find I, I teach now at Columbia and I'm often amazed on the one hand, the generation of millennials and Gen Zers of which I, I parent to, they're very talented and they have a lot more knowledge and agility and, and sophistication than I think I did and my peers did in our time. On the other hand, they're in a rush. And I think that they've been uh, a little bit distorted by the examples of you know, some of these Silicon Valley, you know, IPO types who by the time they were 30 were already, you know, right. on their third venture and getting ready for their fourth IPO and whatever. I don't think that, I, first of all, there are very few people, you know, if you look at the, who actually succeed on that kind of pacing. And second of all, you know, I think real quality experience and, um, and, and learning comes comes with time, comes with unexpected things, comes with comes in the things that happen between your successful, you know, milestones. And so I, I would just tell people not not to think of their career as something they should be optimizing and rushing through, uh, but thinking about it for the richness and the relationships that will see them well beyond, you know, just what their next job is and to mm -hmm. take a longer term view. Brilliant advice. I remember one time Delia said to me, you start losing brain cells at 28 or do you remember that Delia? After 28, uh, you know, you have to, you know, just like what? Slow down. It's really, 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 really important yeah. for people. I feel like young people, I mean, you know, there's just so much burnout and there's so much pressure they put on themselves. They're not going to enjoy the ride. All right. So this is in my atmosphere. Um, not paying attention to what you are going to wear or opting for the easy way out is still a decision that speaks volumes about who you are and where your aesthetics are going. Will you expand on that? Well, I've been asked, is it better to have bad taste or no taste? <laughs> I say it's better to have bad taste because at least you try. <laughs> I feel like people who just dismiss all of this out of hand dismiss the idea that, you know, that they should do anything other than wear a hoodie when they leave the house, uh, yeah. no matter what the occasion, that don't care about the spaces that they live in and, you know, are reducing their life to very primordial existence. Mm -hmm. I think it, it is leaving a big part of your humanity aside. And I think they forget that just because they have learned how to be oblivious to all these aspects of style, doesn't mean that other people looking upon them are dismissing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if if it, you're going to put yourself out there, you know, and most people don't want to live in a sort of hibernation mode. They want to interact with people. They want to be understood for who they are. I think just just own the decisions you make. It, your, your taste doesn't have to be my taste. In fact, it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. But I think it should show the best of who you are and really uh, complement that which you believe and should express it. I could not agree more with that. I go over this so often. And it's very interesting to me, too, when I'm working with, let's say it's a professor. On one hand, they don't want to dress too young because they want the respect of their peers, but they want to be relatable to their kids, especially college and high school teachers. And then also they feel like paying attention to how they look will make the other professors think that they are 
you know, frivolous or shallow and not as intelligent. So it's very interesting. Once we start working together, especially if it's someone who calls me or connects with me because the university wants them to put out some videos for their department, mm-hmm. what should they wear? You know, it's and then when we start getting into this, the sort of the science of getting dressed and all the things that the people that are looking at you are feeling and thinking just based on what you wear, then they get very interested in it mm-hmm. and realize the power that they have that they're not utilizing. Right. Well, thank God they have you by their side to remind them. <laughs> but yeah, and I think people who, um, who work in very intellectual domains they tend to have sort of relegated all their value into what comes of their head as opposed to the rest of their body. Like similar to traditionally athletes, for them, they might be obsessed with their level of fitness, but they didn't think about their style. And that has changed a lot. If you look at some of the trends that are coming from the basketball court or in women's gymnastics and and skiing, I mean, we're seeing a lot more expressions of Mm -hmm. color, of design, and partly because those individuals are visible and they're well-managed and people are looking at them as brands. Mm-hmm. So they're being dressed. Mm-hmm. But I think professors, you could say the same thing. They're very visible. They're very respected. Mm-hmm. They want to be heard and they should take this as seriously as they do, you know, other intellectual pursuits. Absolutely. It's fascinating process to watch them begin to, you know, express themselves to what they're wearing. It's one of my favorite uh, groups of women to work with. When I read that sentence in the book, I immediately wrote it down and knew it had to be a question because <laughs> it's such a key. I mean, I subscribe to some tech emails and I'll see pictures of literally, I guess, a CEO speaking at a conference in front of who knows how many people literally wearing a hoodie. I mean, it's just a sign of respect. I just, yes. it's so and it's self-respect as far as I'm yeah. concerned. It's self-respect too. And maybe they're super insecure. I mean, what is this? I'm too cool. I don't have to get dressed. Another thing that I thought was very fascinating from the talk and the book, you talked about how you design your office matters. So you in the book described the difference in the Carlisle and the KKR offices and how they convey the company values. So one must think about the message that you're sending to clients and employees when you're designing your office. For example, you talked about when you were designing yours as the chairwoman of LBMH. So let's discuss. So my process there, you know, I I am not part of the Arnaud family, which are French. I'm American. And I was running the North American unit. So I wasn't pretending that I'm, you know, trying to emanate out of this old Parisian culture. And similar to what I said earlier about finding my own style, there was a bit of a reconciliation between the old world and the sort of traditional fashion world that I was representing and the modern New York woman that I am. Um, and unlike the more formal French, I prided myself on being a more accessible leader, on speaking in an American way, And so my goal with that office was to show as much of Pauline that was appropriate at the same time to feel that it was a place of high style because the company was, and frankly, that's a value system of mine as well. Uh, I guess that it was really just a mood that kind of drove how I wanted it to feel, but above all, because I could talk about how I wanted others coming through my office to feel I wanted it to feel like something I would be excited to step into every day, you know, because while it was a different work scenario than being at Bain or Carlisle, which I mentioned earlier, it still was a very intense one. I spent a lot of hours in that office. And if it didn't make me joyful, then I think it would have been a big miss, no matter how impressive it might have been to others. So it was a space that I loved stepping into. Especially when you consider how much time you spend there. That's right. All right. Even in the workplace, we are still human. Pretending otherwise can undermine creative problem solving and even emotional well-being or hurt our business interests. It inhibits us from connecting authentically with one another and our customers. And this is so important. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think I go back to my comment earlier that, you know, our customers don't need more stuff. The right. need, um, which is human, is um, relationships. They need um, and ones that they trust and they value. 
Uh, they need to feel supported. They need to feel that they've been, in this case, uh, the case of fashion, given a reason to express their best self in a way, in a toolkit for doing so. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is all based on very authentic uh, connections. So, um, so I think it's critical. I think it's critical for most businesses. Mm-hmm. I think fashion in the world we live in doesn't survive if it can't deliver on that. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I feel like because of this time that we've just been living through, when we are meeting with people in their living rooms and in their kitchens and in their basements with kids crawling around, we are having to be accommodating as human beings of each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that'll carry over post-COVID. I hope so. So throughout your career, sometimes you maybe were going after a job and sometimes people were coming to you. So do you have any tips on knowing your worth, salary negotiation, things like that? Well, uh, it's a good question. I think it obviously helps to have as many benchmarks as possible. So one of the reasons it's so tricky, especially for women who don't have as big a network as maybe a preceding generation of, uh, of an old boys network, is that we don't know really what to compare it with. There's no transparency. Mm-hmm. So I think if you have some, some, some benchmarks to work against, like these, this is what other people in comparable situations are commanding and therefore this seems fair, it certainly helps ground you in the negotiation. I think the other thing is just to think very objectively about the value that you're creating for the proposition. Because at the end of the day, if you're asking for more money than you're creating, it, you, you know, it's a very hard argument to make. But if you know, for example, that a certain business is, if done well, going to generate X million and that mm-hmm. your contribution to that is, you know, whatever fraction, and that in the absence of someone like you, you know, with your unique talents, it might be even less than that fraction. I think, again, that gives you a basis to say, I'm creating value. This is not just about me extracting value. It's me creating value. And that's the value that I want a good portion of. Very much. Knowledge is power when you go to negotiate. Any learnings? I'm sure there are many from Bernard Arnault or the Lauders? Um, you know, they're, they're both, uh, if I just take the two patriarchs of those families, Leonard Lauder and Bernard Arnault, you know, they're very different archetypes, very different men, but both self-made. I mean, they started with some family means, but not significant, mm-hmm. and they built up their companies. I would say um, they're both, uh, you know, for better or for worse, relentless. They, uh, they're, they're from a very early age, were, were driven and persistent, and they fight for what they want, but they do it shrewdly. Neither are, are, are sort of bullying their way to success. I think both of them did take, and, and this I give Leonard a great amount of respect as an American businessman, but they did take a long view. Um, they both have been um, skilled at, at identifying talent that will build their companies for them. Because as we know, you know, only one, one man or one woman can only accomplish so much. But if you surround yourself with the right people and you give them a, a, a semblance of ownership, co-ownership, a lot can mm-hmm. be unleashed. So that was another key lesson. And they both have very, very high standards, very unforgiving of, of, uh, of those who dilute their standards. And I think that's particularly important in businesses that are con- conveying the value of excellence. So before you mentioned economic sustainability, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast. So I'm wondering if you, for your business, have a long-term game. One of the biggest issues can be cash flow. So let's talk a little bit more about economic sustainability, if you have anything more to say about that. So when I think of economic sustainability, I think of it less in terms of, you know, obviously the business should be profitable, or if it's not currently profitable, it better have a path to profitability. But it also should have sort of an underlying healthy flow of business. So one of the problems that a lot of companies have is they may come out with a great product idea. It comes in the market, people buy the product, and they never come back. And unless you then invest in your next product, which may be very different and may be very costly to invest in, or you try to enter a new market, which also can be very costly to do, you're stuck with a one, you know, with a, with a, you know, uh, and, and, and you see that, you know, you see the type of things that are sold through infomercials and TV. These are one-off businesses. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Sustainable businesses to me have a flow where often their most profitable customer keeps getting profitable over time because they create a sense of loyalty where that person has reason to come back and comes back happily and comes back and is willing to pay more than a fair price because he or she feels the value they get is well worth it. Um, so, so those are the kind of considerations in deciding, is this a sustainable model? Um, and is this going to leave us with enough wiggle room in terms of profitability or cash flow so that we can t- continually invest in keeping our, our, our products fresh in marketing so that the audience knows we're here and creating content that is worth marketing around. You need to do more than just, you know, make a narrow margin on the product you sell and think that's sufficient. You do have to be able to reinvest in the business. Think about it like a garden. It's one thing to buy flowers at the store, which, you know, may be beautiful, but they'll sadly die in a week or two. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to build a garden and water it every day a little bit and know that the, sometimes the weather's going to be better and sometimes it'll be worse. But over time, it starts becoming sort of um, a, a sustainable space that you may not even need to overwater it becomes a life of its own. And that's what I would hope for most businesses. Do you have any thoughts on what would be a better model than the quarterly earnings, that unrelenting cycle? Well, I think even if the quarterly earnings are still reported, it's, it's incumbent upon investors to also take a longer term view. So just because a company had a bad quarter, not to necessarily penalize it and be quick to sell. So I think that the the pressure goes both ways. It's not just what the company reveals of itself, but it's how the market reacts to those results. In terms of companies, I would say the biggest issue I have with the quarterly results is just that it puts a lot of pressure on the organization to constantly be reporting as opposed to thinking strategically about the direction it's going in over many years. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think probably every quarterly report has to be layered onto a reminder of why we're in this business and what our, let's call it three-year roadmap is taking us toward. That brings me back to those designers. Now that there are books out about them and biographies and, you know, posthumous autobiographies of, I mean, biographies of people that were pushed so far so quickly that they could not ultimately succeed because they weren't given enough time. So Pauline, what is next for you? Well, I mentioned earlier, and this is one of the more exciting things I've embarked on in some time, that I decided about a year ago that I didn't want to stop this journey of teaching people about aesthetic intelligence. I didn't want to stop with the book or with my university classrooms for a few reasons. One is the classroom setting is hard to scale. There's only 50 kids I can talk to. And I thought the audience should be bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And the book is hard to evolve because I wrote it in 2018, 19, and the world constantly changes. And how do I keep this conversation in the case studies I use fresh? So I started uh, investing in an online learning platform, which I call Aesthetic Intelligence Labs. It is an online class that consists of masterclass videos, exercises, a community involvement feature, and a live Zoom-based webinars where I can walk people through different discoveries. And that will be open to the public. Anyone can sign up for it. If any of your uh, listeners are interested, you can go to my website, which is aestheticintelligence.com and put your name on the um, newsletter list. And I will be announcing in about a month uh, how you can sign up for the course. I'm signing up today. Oh, thank you. So people can find you at your website, Mm -hmm. which is aestheticintelligence.com. And the book is, yeah, it's, it's, uh, of course, every book is, it's available at Amazon. It's available mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble. It's, uh, it's available. You can buy it through HarperCollins, who's my publisher. Uh, so whatever is, is easiest. I'd love to send people to bookstores, but I know that's not so practical these sure. days. Two quotes I'll leave you with, and then you will go by the book. Practice leads to polish, and the best personal style does not follow trends and is not concerned with being fashionable. So those, we mentioned a couple quotes from the book, but literally there are so many. Every single page is filled with incredible and information. It's true, Pauline. Thank you so much for being here. It was a delight, and I've really enjoyed getting to know both of you. Love that Southern accent. I could listen all day. <laughs> and uh, I uh, also will look forward to following you and your style. You're, you're both a really, really interesting sort of Southern meets New York meets global cool. 
<laughs> for having me on your show. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Binds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe. 